Well, good morning. Welcome to Yonkson Baptist Church's English Sunday School class for, what's the date today? April 3rd, 2022. Wow. We're a third of the way through this year already. Time's flying. So, to continue our lesson today, Biblical Creationism, on the wonders of the human body, we are going to look at, I think this is number seven now, that we're looking in at the wonders of, of, of evidence from us. Uh, for biblical creation, and I know that um, from both scientific observation and from studying the Bible, and I can think of 1 Corinthians 12 and some other passages right off the bat, the body is made up of many parts, right? We've looked at the brain and the heart, specifically after we looked at the entire um, body and what it means to be human. Right? being made in the image of God, those studies. And today I want to start sort of addressing the five senses and those sensory organs and kind of how that speaks to the wonders of the body that God has created that separates humans from the rest of the world, the rest of the creation. Uh, the senses um, and how we use them have so much to do with how we experience the world around us and how we interact with other people and our environment. Um, it's, it's a marvelous design of synergy, of the combination of the parts being greater than the sum of the whole. And today, we'll start with one that's right in front of our face. The nose! Oh, it's not quite as... Uh, it's a little too subtle because of the background here, but whatever. <laughs> so your sense of smell and, and how it works and how it compares uh, to the rest of nature is what we're going to cover today. So you, we've all heard that comparatively to the mammalian animal species like dogs, right? Humans have a, an inferior sense of smell, right? You've all heard that. That our, our sense of smell is not up to the level of most of the animal kingdom. But did you know that this notion is a 19th century evolutionary myth? Okay. It is not scientific evidence, and modern scientific evidence is starting to show us just how much of a myth it is. According to a review published in Science Magazine, how good of a sniffer you are is not dependent on your species, but rather on what you're trying to sniff and how you measure olfactory, that's the scientific word for the, the sense of smell, olfactory quality and ability. So let's look at how your sense of smell works as a human. Olfaction, which is the sense of smell, involves detection of airborne chemicals, okay? Scents are actually <laughs> molecules that interact with you. So molecules, <clears throat> excuse me, whether they are from a fragrant flower, or from baking bread, mm. Mm. or from grilling hamburgers, mm. or from your skunky feet. <laughs> the molecules that create those fragrances, good or bad, enter your nose and they dissolve in the mucus produced by the olfactory epithelium, that's the skin layer, that lines the upper part of your nasal passages. You can see here with the yellow, these are the clusters that we're about to talk about. But you breathe in molecules. So if it's something that smells good or something that smells bad, 
it is actually a molecule of that thing entering your nasal passage. So you can, you can do what you want with that information about what kind of molecules you've actually had in your head. But <laughs> when they enter your nose, they dissolve in the mucosal membranes and then they embed in the lining with these millions and millions of specialized neurons called olfactory receptor cells. Each kind of receptor is keyed to detect a certain kind of molecule. Okay? When a receptor detects a target molecule, it sends a signal to a nearby part of the brain called the olfactory bulb. That's this part that's smushed right underneath the frontal lobe there. Olfactory bulbs receive direct input from the olfactory receptor cells, and <clears throat> they are oval shaped slightly. There's two of them, one for each side. Right? They're slightly oval shaped, but then smushed underneath the brain's frontal lobe. It makes sense that they're toward the front of the brain because for most land-based mammals, that's where we keep our nose, in the front of our face. Okay. In humans and large primate animals, the, the pair of olfactory bulbs are just above the nasal passages. In rodents and other mammals, those bulbs are prominently located at the front of their brain and they, compri they comprise a proportionately to the size of the brain larger space. So that is part of that, the, the build toward that myth is that relative to their brain size, the olfactory bulbs of a mouse are a lot larger than ours are relative to our brain size. Okay? So that is a true piece of information interpreted, we're going to find, incorrectly. Okay? From the olfactory bulbs, the information about detectable smells is forwarded to the rest of the brain. And to get the most from that information, it's combined with information from other receptors sent to many other destinations. So your brain spreads out that information when it translates it. The olfactory bulbs are highly organized in humans. They contain spherical clusters called glomeruli. I know that's a hard word. Formed by the transmitting ends or the axons, we saw this when we were talking about the brain, the axon is the transmitting end of a neuron, right? And then the dendrites are the receiving end of <coughs> the neurons. So they are uh, passed from one, from the receiving end to the, the transmitting end back and forth, but then the neurons network the signal. And that network signal then spreads through other destinations and causes other behaviors, emotions, and responses. So that's why smell can trigger memory. That's why it can affect behavior, right? That's why it can control responses, um, or at least uh, give an impetus for a response. Smells, <clears throat> modern research demonstrates that humans can even follow a scent trail, like a bloodhound, and it suggests that human social interaction in some ways is shaped through odor perception. How you perceive the smell of a fish market and how someone from Midwest America perceives the smell of a cow farm may be the same. But how you perceive the other thing may be entirely opposite. Whether a smell is familiar or foul can be entirely genetic or environmentally 
affected, right? But it's not species related as much as it is that you know that adaptation and genetics. So it's it's very 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 fascinating. The underestimation of human smell ability is related to the comparative size of the brain's olfactory bulbs in various mammals. Of course, there are small mammals with small brains, large mammals with large brains, and humans with proportionate to our body size, exceptionally large brains. <clears throat> Especially this one. But <laughs> the proportional size of the overall brain to olfactory bulb size is uh, what we're looking at. Our olfactory bulbs, though larger than the, those of a mouse, are proportionately much smaller than a mouse's when compared to overall brain size, as I mentioned. But that is not necessarily where the function, that is a visible issue. But now you have to look at the efficiency of it versus the size of it, okay? And that, that's where we need to get into. So looking at the vestigial olfaction myth, um, to understand how false evolutionary notions about olfaction came to be, we need to take a historical and anatomical detour through the brain's speech center. So the front of the brain on one side was, was discovered in the 19th century uh, to, to uh, control speech in humans, okay? So we saw a couple of weeks ago that it is only humans above all other animals that has the capacity for language, spoken language, okay? The language part of the human brain is located on one side and toward the front. The, the, pre, the, the, the frontal cortex or the frontal lobe of the human brain is perceived by scientists to be where we house all of our humanness, right? Um, so this neuroanatomist named Paul Broca discovered the part of the human's brain's dominant frontal lobe that controls language, so they called that the Broca area of the brain named after him. He found that damage to this region of the brain impairs a person's ability to speak, thus the physical location of the brain must be tied to language. And we did see when we talked about the brain, the map of the neurons, where they are not necessarily associated with you know front of the body, back of the body, front of the brain, back of the brain, but within there, the, the, the fingers are located next to the neurons for the arm, which are located next to the neurons for the the side, and you know, they, they, they are, as they are regionally aligned in the body, they are regionally aligned in the brain. He noted that many unique abilities that we would use to define humanness are physically associated with the frontal lobes of the brain. The human brain is much larger than that of an ape, and a lot of that size difference comes from the front lobe. You see the, the, the skulls that we compared between a man and an ape, where the man's face is nearly vertical and the apes slants backward. So the apes brain has most of the back functionality of our brain, but not the frontal lobes, right? And then we have that vertical brain and, and head cavity, this huge melon, right? To accommodate the frontal lobes. Um, Broca recognized <clears throat> in his studies that humans are not compulsively driven to behave in accordance with our, the information we gather from smell <clears throat> like other animals are. So, continuing over the next few decades, scientists who followed Broca, accept, their accepted wisdom was that humans had evolved their uniqueness, even their conscious free will, at the expense of their sense of smell. But it was purely an assumption. 
those who believed that humans were just highly evolved animals readily accepted those assumptions to connect comparative size of smell processing parts of the brain with the behavioral drives of animals and humans. <clears throat> so possession of a super smelling ability was assumed to be associated with mammals lower in the evolutionary scale. And then a famous 19th century psychologist comes along named Sigmund Freud, you might or might not have heard of him, and he echoed this notion by characterizing smell, taste, and touch as the, that is, really does drive child's, uh, children's um, development, right? He called that a hearkening back to early animal forms of life because children are more driven by smell, taste, and touch. So obviously that connects us with our evolutionary ancestry. Then a guy named Charles Judson Herrick in 1924 wrote a book called Neurological Foundations of Animal Behavior. And he described the human olfactory apparatus as, quote, greatly reduced, almost vestigial, and declared that the olfactory abilities of, of most other mammals give them powers far beyond our comprehension. It's all a bunch of hogwash. But it was therefore assumed that humans were so much more highly evolved than other mammals, and because they were so much highly, more highly evolved than other animals, they surely must have a poor sense of smell. That word must, remember we talked about that? They have a lot of theories in evolution that something must be true in order for evolution to be true. Because we, kn we know this, so this must be true, so now we're going to say we know that, because it must be. Maybe it's not. But the ability to smell must be vestigial. But if you haven't heard of the word vestigial, I know it's a a complicated science word. Vestigial simply means that it is something we evolved past needing, but we kept it as a reminder that we evolved past it. But it's pretty well useless. You don't need your appendix. We can just take it out. You don't need the end of your spinal column that looks like used to be a tail. Okay, you can buzz that off and see how many different ligaments and uh, muscles are connected to it you're not going to be able to stand up or squat or lean over. That's all to you. Um, but a lot of things that, just like a lot of things that science has labeled as vestigial or unnecessary or hearkening back in our evolutionary development, anything they label as vestigial, they stop studying. Hmm? Wisdom teeth. Right, wisdom teeth. They label our wisdom teeth as vestigial saying that you know we used to need them and now we don't need them because we only needed them when we were chewing on stuff and we needed to replace the teeth that we broke out of our heads. I would say maybe we were bigger in the pasts and we, did, we grew past our baby teeth and then as we got to a full-grown adult, maybe we were like some of the skeletons that have been found around the world, 13, 14 feet tall, and our jaws kept growing and we needed uh, you know, 50, 100 years into our life another set of teeth in the back and God had put those there on purpose. And maybe because of a fallen, sin-cursed world, we're just not getting as big as we used to, and maybe we don't need them. But that doesn't mean that they're not there for a purpose, okay? But that term vestigial, it just, it's intellectually lazy. Because it says, oh, it's vestigial, we don't have to study it. We don't really have to know what the appendix does, because 200 years ago we didn't know what the appendix did, and we labeled it as unnecessary. Okay? But... Thankfully, there are some scientists who are still continuing to study things that other scientists are lazily um, dismissing as vestigial, as we're going to see with the sense of smell. 
so there was a century from the 19th century to the, to the late 20th century where no scientist bothered to ask the question, do we really have a poor sense of smell? <coughs> the evolutionary assumption that human smell is virtually vestigial has affected the interpretation of modern scientific observations. Humans have about 1,000 genes encoding protein, I'm sorry, gene encoding proteins for odor receptors. Investigations have, or investigators of this in the past have typically reported that only 390 of those 1,000 genes encode for functional odor receptors. Okay, the rest have just been assumed to be pseudogenes, that they're, they're there and kind of useless and left over. However, as with most assumptions that humans carry, you know, around a lot of genetic junk from our evolutionary past, it's, this theory should be junked. Um, <clears throat> it turns out that 60% of those other 410, I'm sorry, 610 so-called uh, pseudogenes, they, also, they actually transcribe into mRNA or messenger RNA. So they support, not at a full, but at a, a support, a, uh, a secondary level, this whole process. And they are functional contributors to the olfactory process. Work is ongoing by some people in, in these fields to sort out what all these olfactory receptors do. But the sad thing, well, not the sad thing, the exciting thing is, there's still stuff we don't know about our body. We're still studying after thousands of years, and there are things we don't know. And that's exciting because that means we can make a new discovery. But the number um, now of how many different types of scents we can identify is in the trillions compared to when all of this got discovered and, and talked about, and then they just decided this is where we are, where they said it was no more than 10,000 scents that a human could identify. But now we've, we've shown scientific evidence that we're in the trillions. And there are, it's not just someone like Sherlock Holmes, right, that has an increased sense of smell or, or whatever. That, that capacity is in every human being. Uh, humans and various animal species are well equipped to, de to detect different sorts of smells to differing degrees and to interpret the information in ways that suit their needs. Um, even though we have a relatively I'm sorry, neither humans nor animals are short on the number of neurons devoted to olfaction. So in our, um, uh, the, in our differences in brain size and body size, a mouse, a marmoset, and a man all have about the same 10 million olfactory neurons, even with the difference in size and the difference in capacity. But having a similar, similar number of neurons is not the same as the, the capability, okay? So there are unique qualities to olfaction between the species. One of the biggest differences between a human system and that of animals is the way that the information gathering neurons are organized. In this system of glomeruli, we have 5,600 clusters, or 5,600 glomeruli. And in those clusters, they make connections between sensory neurons that can then can make connections with other sensory neurons up to 16 different places. So our connections of our olfactory receptor cells spread a lot farther and, and longer than most other uh, species. A, a, a mouse, for example, makes two connections beyond what they smell. So they're not identifying memories and emotions and, and all kinds of things with their 
smells. Um, but humans, effectively, and I'm not trying to get too deep into the science here, I know it was a little bit bad, but humans do not have a substandard sense of smell, but rather one that's entirely suited to help us interact with our world the way we were designed to interact. And that's just what we would expect from our biblical worldview. Not that we've evolved past that and we don't need it anymore. If you think you don't need something, you will probably act like you don't need it. And then you will think you don't need it because you've acted like you don't need it. It's a self-looking ice cream cone. Okay? God has designed humans with a smelling system of superior quality. We can detect not the few thousand of odors or a few thousand odors that Pop Wisdom claims, but virtually, this is from the study they determined in Science Magazine, humans can detect virtually all molecules that float in the air that are larger than one or two atoms. Whether that creates a smell or not, our brain can detect them. Human noses can discriminate between an astounding number of scents, like I said, it's already in the trillions and probably growing. And those things that we smell exert a tremendous effect on our emotions, our memories, and our perceptions. Molecules to man evolution cannot explain where the information came from to design such an elaborate olfactory system that is completely different in the number of connections it makes amongst the neurons' capacities, right, than all the rest of, the, of creation. Um, neither genetic information nor the genetic systems to interpret the and implement that information can spring into existence from nowhere. That's the biggest difference between evolution and creation <coughs> is in the beginning, nothing, and in the beginning, God. In the beginning, nothing can never get us to, mmm, I smell bread, or mmm, I smell poo-poo daddy. We can't get there from nothing, okay? Like all information, it has to have a source. And for us, God, the creator of the universe, is the source of all information. Amen. Information that we smell, information that we taste, information that we touch, that we'll get into in the next couple of weeks, right? Our senses were designed by our creator for a purpose, and we should use them for his glory and give him the glory for what he's done. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll get to uh, the service today.